the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Vice President Pence making it clear last night in his uh, keynote speech, day three of the Republican National Convention, that law and order is on the ballot and what you see being tolerated by big city and not so big city mayors and blue state or swing state Dem socialist governors is um, not going to be tolerated by a Trump-Pence administration. Last week, Joe Biden didn't say one word about the violence and chaos engulfing cities across this country. So let me be clear. The violence must stop, whether in Minneapolis, Portland, or Kenosha. Too many heroes have died defending our freedom to see Americans strike each other down. We will have law and order on the streets of this country for every American of every race and creed and color. And uh, yesterday, President Trump uh, tweeted out that uh, his team had spoken with Governor Evers's team uh, and uh, well, with, with Governor Evers himself, actually, uh, who agreed to accept the federal assistance that Trump was scrambling I will be sending federal law enforcement and the National Guard to Kenosha to restore law and order. We will not stand for looting, arson, violence, and lawlessness on American streets. And uh, Evers agreed. Evers? Evers? Potato, potato. Uh, we uh, did learn more information about uh, the police-involved shooting of Jacob Blake, including, as was suspected, based on the, the reach into the car and the reaction of the police officer, that there was a knife in the car. Uh, the uh, police officer who fired the seven shots was identified as uh, Rustin Shesky. They're on administrative leave pending the outcome of the investigation, as you would expect. Um, so, you know, it gets uh, more complicated. Um, those nuances are going to be lost on the rioters on the streets of Kenosha and elsewhere. I mean, you saw rioting break out again in Minneapolis. This was in a police involved shooting. This was a murder suspect who committed suicide in prison. Any reason, any reason to try to uh, bait police into confrontations that, that they can use to demagogue police, to demagogue the Trump administration, to get to the defund police solution that they want for big cities so that they can get to their real target, which is middle-income families around the country, including in Kenosha, including in the suburbs, including in the exurbs. There is nowhere that this cultural assault will spare if it's allowed to continue unabated. For more on Wisconsin, we're pleased to be joined now by Andrew Hitt. He's the chairman of the Republican Party of Wisconsin. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So um, let's talk a little bit about Kenosha before we um, 
and talk about uh, the presidential race more generally. Uh, and uh, and the, the party's response, particularly uh, to the uh, governor's response, and by the way, the lieutenant governor's response, both of their initial responses were essentially to say that the police are systemically racist. This was a terrible thing. We're not waiting for evidence. And uh, to, to, to call for a special session of the state legislature there to move the police reforms, in quotation marks, that the governor had proposed earlier this year. Yeah, they immediately came out and assumed and, um, you know, really said that the law enforcement officer did everything wrong. Uh, I think what we see out of Evers and Barnes, uh, our lieutenant governor, you know, and the reaction around the country to law and order is just more Trump derangement system. Uh, you know, the president um, wants law and order, and so they are just going to be the opposite of it. And that's going to lead to chaos. And it is, um, it's really unfortunate. Uh, his statements, Governor Evers' statements, really incited the riots uh, the, in the nights after this incident and we saw it spiral out of control and then he goes further and rejects help from president trump yeah right we talked to former milwaukee county sheriff david clark and he was suggesting it should have been more like a thousand to fifteen hundred given the the size of the uh, group of rioters and the relative size of the the just the number of uniformed officers the kenosha police department had to deploy um, but, of course, that didn't happen, and now half the town, half the downtown has been gutted, basically, as, as uh, we understand it. Right, right. And, um, you know, I think that um, if if we wouldn't have had the president engage on this, we would have seen um, last night be worse than the night before. Uh, but I think it's that overwhelming force that people heard coming um, that tamed things down last night. So, thankfully... Last night was fairly calm, but as you guys talked about, there's going to be a charging decision coming up um, soon, I would think, and um, that that's going to be another flashpoint uh, in this incident. There was this um, this uh, store owner in Kenosha who was uh, picking up the the destruction that had occurred in his store, window shatter and stuff, and some uh, some one one of the this the girls on the street said to him. You know, um, this this is, you know, the violent people. This isn't who we are. And he basically said, are, are you trying to elect Trump? Are, are you trying to elect Trump? You know, you can tell me this is who you this is not who you are and you you're not supporting the violence. I see you with them. And that's the end of the story. I got a family to feed. I don't have time for this nonsense. Now you just destroyed my business. You know, take a walk. And uh, I, I, I got to tell you, um, I, I think that uh, the you know rich guys uh, like the Milwaukee Bucks uh, and and other teams too, the Lakers and the Clippers and stuff, trying to you know get in on the action here. That is only going to drive more reasonable, regular people in places like Kenosha and Wisconsin and the rest of the country, and frankly, the rest of the Rust Belt to Trump. It would seem to me. Yes, I, I completely agree. I mean, um, you know, we are. I think we're already seeing um, in Wisconsin how this issue is moving more voters to us. I think the silent majority is is no longer going to be silent. Um, If this can happen in Kenosha, uh, it can happen anywhere in America. And um, if it can happen in Kenosha, it can happen anywhere in Wisconsin. And, you know, we are... Our voters, uh, our citizens here in Wisconsin, I mean, one thing that's overarching, everybody wants to be safe, um, including our, you know, our fellow citizens 
in in the cities in Milwaukee. Uh, they don't want to see the police defunded. They don't want to see their streets uh, fall into further chaos. And when you have only one person standing up like the president and saying, we're going to make sure to keep people safe. I think that is a huge electoral advantage that we have in this upcoming election. Talk to us a little bit of nuts and bolts in Wisconsin, since it's uh, you know perceived to be such a swing state, I think properly perceived to be such a swing state. Um, what is the Wisconsin Republican Party doing, uh, particularly since there's already been fights between uh, Republicans there and Evers with uh, elections? What are you all doing with respect to uh, mail-in balloting, with respect to ground game, with respect to ballot security? Uh, give us a, a vision for the next uh, 70 days up there. Yeah, well, um, on, you know, on the election uh, front and in terms of the laws, in our April 7th election, the Dems, Um, Left-leaning groups brought seven lawsuits trying to change everything from from proof of residency to signature requirements to whether we could vote in person to photo ID. Uh, We won all of those lawsuits. We filed two lawsuits in the state Supreme Court ourselves uh, to preserve our election laws, and we won all of those as well. So we're very focused on making sure that the laws that are on the books stay on the books and are in place and we don't have changes before this uh, election. In fact, in April, we took a case all the way to the United States Supreme Court and won that case too. So um, it was uh, an active time period for us, for sure. Um, With regard to absentee ballots, Wisconsin has a history, a long history of absentee ballots and um, the ability to vote that way. Um, We will continue that. We are absolutely opposed to universal mail balloting where ballots are sent um, to people regardless of whether they're expecting them. Uh, We can't have that. We don't have the system set up for that. Um, We wouldn't have a system set up for that in the next couple of years. Um, So we certainly can't do that now. And we would certainly be very concerned about ballot security and, and election integrity. So we will be pushing folks to who are comfortable and want to vote early to vote early. But we're also going to be telling folks, you, if you're not comfortable with an absentee ballot, you need to vote in person. It is safe to vote in person. We showed in April 7th election that you can safely vote in a pandemic. The CDC, Medical College of Wisconsin, did studies concluded no spike in cases, no spike in death as a result of the election on April 7th. Okay, he is Andrew Hitt. He's the chairman of the Republican Party of Wisconsin. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be on. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I want to transition from our conversation with Andrew Hitt to another aspect of the goings-on in Kenosha, and that's what was referenced, the uh, arrest and uh, charges against uh, one Kyle Rittenhouse from the northern part of Illinois, charged with killing two of the rioters, injuring another. Uh, Rittenhouse was uh, interviewed 
uh, prior to the shooting uh, breaking out on that evening. And uh, this is what he had to say about why he was there, a uh, 17-year-old from suburban, north suburban Chicago, with a rifle to protect somebody's property. What are you doing out here? Obviously, you're armed, and uh, you're in front of this so, business we saw burning last night. So what's up? So people are getting injured, and our job is to protect this business, and part of my job is to also help people. If there's somebody hurt, I'm running into harm's way. That's why I have my rifle, because I need to protect myself, obviously. But I also have my med kit. Mm-hmm. So he, he was, it's not clear if he was enlisted to do this or he volunteered to do this, uh, but uh, there is a characterization of him uh, from Ayanna Presley. She, Francis Parker Spice, she went to the elite Francis Parker School in Chicago. Privilege. Uh, well, she's one of the Socialist Spice Girls, of course, now Democrat Socialist Congresswoman from Massachusetts. She tweeted up a 17 year old white supremacist domestic terrorist drove across state lines armed with an AR-15. He shot and killed two people who had assembled to affirm the value, dignity and worth of black lives. Fix your damn headlines. Is that what happened? Uh, it's not clear that uh, that's the case. Shockingly, Ayanna Presley, uh, why would uh, they exercise uh, the, the Democrat socialists like Ayanna Presley exercise? restraint on a matter like this any more than these same defund the police ISTAs exercise restraint when it comes to something like the police involved shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. Just a profile on a couple of the on the two individuals who were killed by uh, allegedly by Rittenhouse and the other one injured. One, the 36 year old who was shot in the head, he uh, was seen chasing Rittenhouse, throwing something at him. He's a registered sex offender for committing a sex crime, sex crime involving a minor. And I know that would be prejudicial in a court of law, but I still like to characterize these individuals, what we know about them based on their behavior that night, which we're starting to get some information on, in addition to in response to the characterization that these were somehow 21st century civil rights leaders there to affirm the value of and worth of black lives. And point of fact, this guy, this 36-year-old who was killed, was seen on video trying to be a tough guy in the moment he was going around. He's a white guy going around saying, shoot me, N-word. Once you shoot, go ahead and shoot me, N-word, and uh, beating his chest. Uh-huh. The 26-year-old who was shot and killed, he was filmed chasing down uh, Rittenhouse and hitting him when he was on the ground with a skateboard. He has a criminal history that includes charges of battery and, repeated, uh, and, re- and, and repeat domestic abuse. The individual who was injured, shot in the arm, also 26 years old. He's a member of the People's Revolution Movement. He was filmed chasing after Rittenhouse with a pistol. He was shot at close range in the upper arm. He has a criminal record that includes being intoxicated and unlawful use of a weapon. And then there's the reporting. And this is New York Times, New York Times virtual reporters who pieced together from various video streams as much as they could. And listen to this thread just to give you some context before you pass judgment, even though there has been arrest and charges filed. And I'm not rallying the defense of um, Rittenhouse, I, I, a 17-year-old. He shouldn't. You have to be 18 to uh, carry a gun in Wisconsin. So he was in violation of law in that way. And a 17-year-old shouldn't be up there in that context anyway. It just was, you know, it was a, a terrible error in judgment. And then he got himself into something, whether he is the moving party or he was acting in self-defense. It would have been better had he not been there. Clearly, nonetheless, the truth matters in terms of what charges should be brought against Rittenhouse, what the evidence provides. Uh, The New York Times visual investigations team reviewed hours of live streams to track Rittenhouse's movements during and leading up to the shootings. He was protecting a local 
vehicle dealership. I think I may have said gas station, but a local vehicle dealership together with several other armed men. He also offers medical assistance to protesters. He's around the area, that area, most of the footage we, we, we reviewed. This is New York Times reporting. About 15 minutes before the first shooting, police drive past Rittenhouse and thank the group he's with. We appreciate you guys. We really do. They broadcast through the speakers of their arm, armored vehicles. Rittenhouse walks up to the police vehicle with his rifle slung, talks with officers. One tosses a water bottle to the armed men. And, they, and they've got uh, video evidence to support the captions I'm reading. Rittenhouse eventually leaves the dealership and is barred by the police from returning about six minutes before the first shooting. Uh, to better understand what happened next, uh, they synchronized six live streams, which revealed there were two separate shooting incidents about one and a half minutes apart involving multiple gunmen. Rittenhouse is first seen. He's being chased into a parking lot while he is being pursued. An unknown gunman fires the first shot into the air. Rittenhouse turns towards the sound of the gunfire as another pursuer lunges toward him. He then fires four times with his rifle and appears to shoot the man in the head. That's the 36 year old sex offender. The muzzle flash of the first shot by the unknown gunman and the smoke rising from the handgun can be seen in the video captured uh, in the video capturing the first shooting from a different angle. It's unclear why Rittenhouse was being chased or why he was in the area of this car dealership four blocks away from the one he claimed he'd be protecting. We do know there were vehicles in the slot that uh, he was at that were damaged before the first shooting. So maybe he is freelancing a bit and was not enlisted by any property owner or anybody else to be there. But he uh, was looking for action and that's problematic. But uh, now think about that first shooting in context of what uh, Ayanna Presley said. Different story based on this reporting. The initial shot and written announces four subsequent discharges of his uh, rifle are followed by three more shots in the parking lot. We don't know who fired them. Rittenhouse seems to make a phone call and then flee the scene. While fleeing the scene, Rittenhouse is again chased by several people. He trips and falls to the ground, fires four shots as three people rush him. One appears to be hit in the chest, while another who is carrying a handgun is hit in the arm. The, the man who is ostensibly the man who was injured, uh, the People's Revolution Movement guy. And then the the... One that appears to be shot in the chest, rushing Rittenhouse, falls to the ground, ostensibly the other person who was killed. At the same time, we hear at least eight gunshots from farther away. Rittenhouse gets up, begins walking north from the scene, and about eight more gunshots are heard from closer range. It's unclear who fired the other gunshots. Police vehicles just one block away away, remain stationary during the gunfire. Rittenhouse walks with his hands up toward police as bystanders call out that he was involved in the shooting. The police drive by him to the scene of the shootings without stopping. And uh, and ultimately, he fled back to Illinois. Um, This footage was reviewed. The arrest warrant was issued and charges were filed. But now that uh, whole drill down of those events and the circumstances in which Rittenhouse opens fire present, well, present a lot different case than, of course, the silliness of Ianna Presley. But uh, uh, you know, also call into question what kind of evidentiary support will there be for first degree murder charges or murder charges at all. Uh, again, turns out to be a lot more nuanced and complicated than the visceral reactions in certain quarters, just as is the case with the police involved shooting of Jacob Blake. Uh, coming up, I want to uh, transition to after the break, I want to transition to a discussion of the answer to the question, you know, what can I do? How can I fight to keep streets safe, to fight the cancel culture? to stand up for uh, individual constitutional rights against the onslaught of the mob, whether in the streets or, or in a school setting or in a corporate boardroom. 
Uh, I think uh, some of the RNC speakers provide some insight on that matter. More after this. They can't touch. Yo, I told you, you can't touch this. Why you standing there, man? You can't touch this. Yo, sound the bell. School is in, sucker. You can't touch this. Give me a song or rhythm making them fit. Listen to the podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And uh, coming up, I'm going to get to uh, Clarence Henderson and Burgess Owens and Jack Brewer, uh, as well as uh, Chen Guangcheng, the Chinese dissident. I want to get to them and answering the question, what can I do to fight? How, how, how do I fight? I, I'm just little old me. I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. But before that, uh, uh, one other topic area to cover uh, on uh, the matter of what's happening in Kenosha, Milwaukee. Of course, uh, yesterday, as you've no doubt heard, the Milwaukee Bucks uh, moved to boycott the, the playoff game in um, in protest of what happened to Jacob Blake and suggesting there has been no action. So our focus today cannot be on basketball. That's Milwaukee Bucks guard Sterling Brown, who joined teammate George Hill, reading a statement on the team's behalf. And uh, Sterling Brown has a federal lawsuit pending against the city of Milwaukee, alleging he was targeted because he was black and the civil rights were violated back in January of 2018 when officers used a stun gun on him after a parking violation. So the topic is a bit sensitive for Sterling Brown in the box, and that's all well and good. The nothing has been done. There's been no action. What specific action is it that you expect? Uh, they don't really have an answer to that, um, at least not one that's reasonable based on the time that's elapsed and the questions that need to be answered, and they need to be answered through investigation and evidence gathering, and that takes a little bit of time. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, Adam Silver was uh, happy to oblige uh, social justice commissioner that he is of the NBA, which is a social justice hyper-politicized league now, thanks in large part to the uh, politicization of its uh, top draw, LeBron James, who we'll get to in a second. But Adam Silver, who was uh, dispatched from some faraway planet to be the NBA commissioner on this one, happy to uh, call off the playoff games amid the uh, protests. So you got a bunch of multimillionaire basketball players saying they won't uh, entertain whoever's still watching the NBA, which is sort of uh, just another in-kind commercial for the Trump-Pence re-election campaign. So I want, I'm sure they'll pen a thank you note to Adam Silver for that. And then, of course, LeBron James and the Lakers, as well as the Clippers, uh, are taking it to the next level, mulling whether to boycott the rest of the NBA season to protest the police-involved shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. Mm-hmm. And uh, LeBron James uh, invade on the topic with his, what he, I think, believes are deep thoughts, but they're just, well, you listen, you decide for yourself. If you're sitting here telling me that there was no way to seduce that gentleman or, or detain him or to just before the firing of guns, then you, you, you're sitting here and you're lying to not only me, you're lying to every African-American, every black person in the community. Actually, you're the one lying, aren't you, LeBron? Yeah, because uh, there's no way to subdue him without using a gun before shots were fired. What are you talking about? 
they uh, he was at a place he shouldn't be. Thus, the police call from a woman there. He was he allegedly had her keys and wasn't giving them back. So he's behaving badly there. Uh, he's confronted by police. He clearly doesn't comply. That's why he's on the ground on the passenger side of his vehicle. They tase him. That's not effective. So that was before shots were fired. Uh, so that's the third issue. The fourth issue is after they try to get him to the ground and he resists and then the tase, the tasing of him doesn't work. He gets up and continues to resist. That's number five, walking around to the uh, that's number four, walking around to the front of the car with a police chasing him. With police officer that we now know uh, to be a Rustin Chesky chasing him, pulling at his shirt for compliance and he doesn't comply. Then he reaches into his car where he apparently told police he had a knife and there was a knife there, as investigators have found. So that's five things. If he didn't do, there would have been no shots fired. I still have more questions that I want answered, including about what police, the police responding police officers knew about this individual, if anything. But five time, five things he did that any one of them had he not done would not have resulted in shots fired, much more likely than not. Uh, but LeBron James uh, is not interested in rationality. He's interested in sentimental barbarism. I know people get tired of hearing me say it, but we are scared as black people in America. Black men, black women, black kids, we are, we are terrified. Jason Whitlock, uh, who's black American sports writer, outkick.com, spoken about him before, referenced his work before, doing so again. He responded to uh, LeBron James' statements that, that you just heard. LeBron James is a bigot. Wow. He uh, writes in response to particularly the comment you just heard, I'm black, I'm not scared, I'm not terrified. Neither is LeBron James, he's lying. He and the political activists controlling him want black people to immerse themselves in fear. Fear is a tool used to control people. If you comply with police instructions, there's virtually no chance of an American citizen being harmed by police. Jason Whitlock has it. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. What am I supposed to do? What can I do? I'm just little old me. When the mob comes for me, what can I do other than bend the knee? Just comply. And also support appeasement from those who actually do have control of some, if not all, of the machinery of state. They have control of police to respond. They have prosecutors who can respond. If my uh, taxpayer-funded, duly elected representatives aren't going to stand against the mob, how can I? Well, there's some speakers at the Republican National Convention on Wednesday night who answered that question through example and storytelling. How can you do anything just yourself, just little old you against uh, the mob, against people with money and power, against the billionaires, the leftist billionaires and the leftists in government and other cultural institutions? When the whole system is wired against you, what can you do? Maybe you can remember Burgess Owens' great-grandfather. I'm Burgess Owens, shackled in the belly of a slave ship. An eight-year-old boy named Silas Burgess came to America to be sold on an auction block. By the grace of God and the courage of slaves who believed in freedom, Silas escaped through the Underground Railroad and settled in the great state of Texas. He went on to become a successful entrepreneur. 
He built his community's first church, first elementary school, and purchased 102 acres of farmland, which he paid off in two years. I'm here today, a candidate for Congress, because of my great-great-grandfather, Silas Burgess. Hmm. Silas Burgess, uh, from uh, somebody who was bought as a piece of property at eight eight years old, great-grandfather to Burgess Owens today, a successful businessman, NFL standout, and now candidate for Congress. And uh, if you don't remember Silas Owens, and I don't know how you, how you could forget him uh, after the, hearing the story, then remember Burgess Owens, who's with us real time. Yes, uh, 10 years uh, in the NFL, Super Bowl champion, all pro, gets out at a young age, uh, you know, 10-year career. That's a long time in the NFL uh, and uh, is ready to embark upon a successful business career. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's some... Stops and starts and stops and starts. When I was 22 years old, I thought all my dreams had come true when I was drafted by the New York Jets. Ten years later, with a Pro Bowl nod and a Super Bowl championship under my belt, I left the NFL to start a business. I thought I could never fail, but years later I did, and I lost everything. As I moved my family of six into a one-bedroom basement apartment in Brooklyn, New York, I had a choice to make, to feel sorry for myself or get to work. I worked as a chimney sweep during the day and a security guard at night. It was humbling to be recognized cleaning a chimney by someone who once cheered me as an NFL fan. But those hard days would pay off, and eventually I started a career, rewarding career, in the corporate world. We live in a country where we're encouraged to dream big, where second chances are at the core of our American DNA. We don't hear that same message from Nancy Pelosi's Congress, career politicians, elitists, and even a former bartender want us to believe it's impossible. They want us to believe that what I did, what my great-great-grandfather did, is impossible for ordinary Americans. And it's not. Bust, boom. Well, well, I should say boom, bust, boom for Burgess Owens. And think about what he was thinking about, uh, particularly when he was at the nadir of his uh, professional career after football, and he had a family of six to feed. And he had to uh, you know, humble himself, as you said, chimney sweep, uh, interacting with people who cheered him on the football field, saying, how could Burgess Owens be doing manual labor? And that's what he had to do to get by, support his family. How about Clarence Henderson, uh, civil rights leader from Greensboro, North Carolina? Uh, he offered some remarks at the uh, convention on Wednesday evening. Uh, he uh, is someone who helped spark the lunch counter sit-in protests against Jim Crow laws in the South during the 60s. What can one person do when the machinery of the state is against you, when the people with power are against you? What did Clarence Henderson do? My friends had been denied service the day before because of the color of their skin. We knew it wasn't right. But when we went back the next day, I didn't know whether I was going to come out in a vertical or prone position, in handcuffs or on a stretcher, or even in a body bag. By sitting down to order a cup of coffee, we challenged injustice. We knew it was necessary. But we didn't know what would happen. We faced down the KKK. We were cursed at and called all kinds of names. They threatened to kill us, and some of us were arrested. But it was worth it. Our actions inspired similar protests throughout the South against racial injustice. And in the end, segregation was abolished, and our country moved a step closer to true equality for all. 
That's what actual peaceful protests can accomplish. Yeah, exactly. A message about the rioters today, what actual peaceful protests can accomplish when you have truly have the moral high ground. When you truly have the moral high ground and you truly have a righteous cause, as the civil rights leaders like Clarence Henderson had. You think he knew as a young man at that lunch counter that it was all going to work out right? That uh, he and his friends would spark uh, others to stage the same sort of sit-ins that would lead to ultimately an eradication of that noxious, racist legal institution, Jim Crow? Think he knew that? No. How could he? Of course not. But he knew his history. He knew it was right. And he acted in furtherance of that. Clarence Thomas introduced uh, Clarence Thomas Clarence Henderson, excuse me, introducing himself to uh, the nation yesterday. At least those that didn't know him, thusly. I'm a military veteran and a civil rights activist, and you know what else? I'm a Republican, and I support Donald Trump. If that sounds strange, you don't know your history. It was the Republican Party that passed the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. It was a Republican Party that passed the 14th Amendment, giving black men citizenship. And on uh, President Trump and the difference he sees there versus Joe Biden. You know, this is a guy who's been around for 60 years fighting the fight. I think he knows the difference between uh, cheap talk and action. Joe Biden had the audacity to say, if you don't vote for him, you ain't black. Well, to that, I say, if you do vote for Biden, you don't know history. Donald Trump is not a politician. He's a leader. Politicians are a dime a dozen. Leaders are priceless. His policies show his heart. He has done more for black Americans in four years than Joe Biden has done in 50. Clarence Henderson on Donald Trump. When we come back, I want to finish off our discussion here by including uh, the remarks of Jack Brewer and also Chinese dissident Chen Guang Chang. More right after this. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back. Uh, Picking up our discussion uh, after uh, hearing from Clarence Henderson, civil rights activist, and Burgess Owens, former NFLer, now GOP nominee for a congressional seat in Utah. In response to, I can't do the rationalization, which is really what it is, the cop-out. I can't do anything. I'm just one person. I can't go up against the powerful. I can't go up against the wealthy. I can't stand for what's right. I just have to bend the knee in the face of the mob. Appeasement is the way. Well, that's not uh, the history of Burgess Owens' family. It's not uh, the history of Clarence Henderson. They were on the side of right and uh, helped affect right from coming to pass, or affect it to coming to pass, I should say. Jack Brewer as well, former NFLer, Minnesota Viking. He knows what racism looks like as well, and he's had some personal experience. He can separate the wheat from the chaff. And he also doesn't appreciate when people are treated unfairly because... 
he knows what it feels like to be treated unfairly. I grew up in Grayvon, Texas, a town that my great-grandfather was the first black man to settle as a sharecropper in 1896. My early high school experience included fighting with skinheads and being in witness in an attempted murder trial after my friend shot a skinhead in self-defense. I remember my dad's bravery when he personally stood up against a KKK rally in my town. In my house, my father taught me to back down from no one. I know what racism looks like. I've seen it firsthand. In America, it has no resemblance to President Trump. And I'm fed up with the way he's portrayed in the media, who refuse to acknowledge what he's actually done for the black community. There again, going back to separating the rhetoric from the results, or at least matching it up the same way that Clarence Henderson did, the same way that uh, everyone should. Lastly, Chen Guangchong, Chinese dissident who was imprisoned by the Chinese communists for daring to question the regime, a lawyer blinded uh, by the persecution he suffered while in prison. It was really a poignant speech because you could see him reading the speech via Braille, and it was a powerful speech at that. My name is Chen Guangcheng. Standing up to tyranny is not easy. When I spoke out against China's one-child policy and other injustices, I was prosecuted, beaten, sent to prison, and put under house arrest by the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. In April 2005-2012, I escaped and was given shelter in the American embassy in Beijing. I'm forever grateful to the American people for welcoming me and my family to the United States, where we are now free. So tell me again that you can't do anything. You're going to listen to the stories of people who put everything on the line or had to fight through real oppression, institutional oppression, institutional racism, slavery, Jim Crow, imprisonment by communists, Owens, Henderson, Brewer, uh, Guang Chang. And you're going to tell me you can't do anything to uh, hold up your end when it comes to fighting barbarians? Yeah, you can. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Representative Dan Crenshaw who served our country honorably and heroically in um, the armed services. He addressed the Republican National Convention yesterday, and he talked a little bit about heroism and, um, as one might expect, talked about it humbly in his case and referenced the heroism of uh, those he served with who saved his life on more than one occasion. We need to remind ourselves what heroism really is. Heroism is self-sacrifice. It's not moralizing and lecturing over others when they disagree. Heroism is grace not perpetual outrage. Heroism is rebuilding our communities, not destroying them. Heroism is renewing faith in the symbols that unite us, not tearing them down. And uh, heroism is also standing on principle, even if the whole world's against you. And uh, grace, though, I like that word that Crenshaw used, grace, in the face of challenge, uh, even in the face of assault. 
That is the uh, quality that I think most uh, characterizes uh, how Jack Phillips has conducted himself over the last uh, half dozen years as he has been under siege by those who would seek to take his business away from him because they disagree with um, some of the beliefs that he has per his faith tradition. Jack Phillips is the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. He uh, had an op-ed in, New York, in, the, uh, in Newsweek, I should say, that we had discussed last week. I'm the Colorado cake artist, and I believe in artistic freedom for all. Taking his case that was initiated, the case against him initiated by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, all the way to the Supreme Court and doing so successfully. And um, he writes about the uh, disparate treatment in American culture today for cake artists like him versus other cake artists like one April Anderson uh, from Detroit, Michigan. And I thought it would be, uh, rather than just giving my review of uh, his op-ed, it would be great to hear from him directly about his experience over the last six years to present with a look forward on the topic of religious liberty in 2020 America. We're pleased to be joined by Jack Phillips, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, and Jake Warner, who is legal counsel with the Alliance for Defending Freedom. Jack and Jake, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having us. So, Jack, I mean, just the, the story uh, you picked up on and uh, with the idea of uh, – helping America remember what tolerance looks like and sounds like uh, your experience over the last six years versus the uh, treatment April Anderson, a Detroit, Michigan cake artist received. Uh, just just tell us that that comparative story and why you felt it was so important. I just want to remind you that at Masterpiece Cake Shop, we serve everybody who comes into our shop. We just don't create every cake with every message that people ask us to. And from what I know of April's uh, case, she uh, declined to create a cake with the message that somebody had asked for, and that's the same thing that we had done. It was the message of the cake. It was not the person or persons asking for the cake. It was simply a message that went against the core of my faith. I declined to create it, though I would serve those people in any time, any other place that I would, uh, any other way that I would serve them here. So something like this occurred that led to this uh, case that you had uh, brought against you. And, and then the, the, the treatment you received from the public, uh, the media coverage, your travails through going through the court system all the way up to the Supreme Court. What was that like? Pretty crazy, especially when I hear April is being applauded by the same media who vilified us in every way that they could. I'm hoping that April would serve this person any time they came in, just like I would, but it's always a message. You can't create every message that people ask you to. Right. I mean, this was a situation where, right, she, uh, as you write in your piece of Newsweek, she identifies as a lesbian. She was asked to make mm-hmm. a cake that expressed opposition to same-sex marriage. So she didn't just decline like you did. Um, she actually made a cake that uh, took the opposite position of the message that the uh, alleged customer wanted her to make. So whatever. Yeah. But she was feted on the Today Show, and, and she's been celebrated, as you were sort of uh, describing. And uh, you were vilified, even though, as you say, as you said from the outset, as you've said, as the court held, you said, I'll serve anybody, but I can't participate in messaging something that I don't believe in. And that's a distinction. That's right. Every artist has a line that they can have to draw. I have several cakes that we won't create. I don't create cakes with alcohol in them. I don't create adult cakes, pornographic cakes, cakes that denigrate others. Even I've had requests for cakes that would denigrate people who identify as LGBT, and I can't create that because it's a message. But I welcome and serve everyone who comes in. You know, what's your perspective on tolerance and specifically tolerance of Christian beliefs 
in America today uh, with uh, the uh, treatment you received both by the government as well as by the media and the treatment that you're watching uh, April Anderson receive? Well, tolerance goes both ways. Um, if they want to be tolerated, then they have to tolerate other viewpoints in, in the marketplace that uh, stand against theirs. Right. As long as you respect the people who are uh, against those who have different viewpoints. Uh, that, that used to be a relatively uh, uncontroversial statement in this country. Now it's a positively revolutionary one. Uh, I, yeah. I, know, I know the Alliance for Defending Freedom rallied to your defense. What about the reaction? And I know the reaction you got was um, vitriol from certain quarters. Was there reaction from any quarter that was encouraging to you? People say, you know what, Jack, I disagree with you. I'm not a Christian, but I do agree with you about tolerance, and I do agree that you shouldn't be forced to do something, to message something you don't want to message, to create art you don't want to create. Oh, yeah, we we had encouragement from some fairly unexpected sources, uh, quite a few uh, people who identify as gay or atheist or agnostic um, came to our defense and said, even though I disagree with your message, I believe that the Constitution uh, you know, protects your right to uh, you know, say that, you know, live the way that you, that you uh, want to. Um, you know, the Constitution guarantees the right to freely exercise our religion, not just have one, but to exercise it. So we had a lot of encouragement and support from people like that. I, uh, I note from your piece you uh, uh, talk about uh, uh, a, a local attorney who has called your shop a couple of times to uh, request cakes he knows you can't make effectively because you know mm-hmm. one, one is more ridiculous than the other. And, and this just speaks to this, this larger culture where you have people spending their time, their free time, trying to jackpot their fellow citizen. And I just wonder how you view that um, sort of... Um, devolution of our culture to that place where and and by the way the same thing with april anderson in michigan the idea that somebody would try to catch her up so that they can trap her and put her out of business or cause her litigation uh, just the, the the attitude that um that leads to that sort of behavior yeah i think that attitude is wrong um, we should respect our fellow citizens and uh, you know you certainly have the opportunity and the right to uh decline to create something artistic in my case that uh, goes against the core beliefs that you held. But uh, we have to be able to engage with other people and have conversations and, and protect this Constitution and these rights that we have. Have you spoken to April Anderson, by the way, just out of curiosity? I have not. I, I w- it would be an interesting conversation to see if uh, she comes down on your side the way that you've come down on her side, you know? Yeah, well, her side, you know, is to decline to create a message, I hope, and still serve the person who asked for that message any other way that she would normally serve anybody else who came to her shop. And uh, just updating where you are and just in terms of these uh, battles with uh, various uh, government, uh, various iterations of government, uh, after you were successful at the Supreme Court, a 7-2 decision, it was somewhat narrowly tailored, but a 7-2 decision nonetheless, so sort of across the ideological spectrum on the court, um, you you still haven't... um, uh, ceased having to uh, f- to, to fend off uh, challenge, legal challenges, right? That's right. We're actually in our third lawsuit. You mentioned an attorney here in Colorado who uh, had asked for different cakes that uh, this person knew that we couldn't create and uh, filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission about one of them, and that commission eventually dropped that case. And then uh, within 90 days, that person could have appealed that decision to dismiss the case. 
but decided instead to pursue me personally on a, in a civil lawsuit. So this person is still, we're still in court with this person. Does, uh, does all of this um, uh, consternation uh, that's now, you know, six years plus uh, in, in enduring, does it make you question your faith at all? Does it make you say, ah, oh, you know what, I'm just going to I'm just going to make the cake and be done with this already. This is I, I just can't go, go on like this. I can't operate my business like this. Do you ever you ever have moments of shakiness? Um, no, my faith has gotten even stronger than uh, it was before because I've seen God work in so many different ways for us. And uh, I know that he's provided all that we need to stay in business and especially providing ADF and uh, to help defend us. And uh, you can you can't get better counsel than them. Well, it's uh, it's an inspired story. I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who wish you weren't having you were not having to be such an inspiration to others. But um, and perhaps that's uh, well, perhaps that's obviously part of God's plan for you. Jack Phillips, mm-hmm. the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, the uh, Colorado cake artist who believes in artistic freedom for all uh, with his attorney, Jake Warner, legal counsel with the Alliance for Defending Freedom. Gentlemen, thanks so much for uh, joining us, Jack. Pleasure to speak with you. Well, thanks for having us, Ken. Good luck. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Dan Henninger writing in the Wall Street Journal about the uh, argument that Democrat socialists are making on behalf of Joe Biden. He's making himself to some extent without saying it explicitly. Return to normalcy. Restore normalcy. Henninger writes normalcy. Joe Biden is running an election year when liberals are fleeing New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago and other cities overwhelmed with protests, homelessness and spreading disorder. For, all, for nearly all families, one of life's basics, educating their children, is in flux. With public school teachers and their unions refusing to go back to work under nearly any pandemic conditions, parents are spending evenings discussing immediate educational alternatives for their kids. The annual fall ritual of going away to college is also in disarray. While the case against Mr. Trump is that people can't take more disruption, the Democratic agenda itself has grown so disruptive that the idea of a Biden return to normalcy is nonsense. And that's not... Uh, where the nonsense begins and ends. Uh, for more on that topic, we're pleased to be joined by Zed Jelani. He is a Greater Goods Bridging Differences writing fellow. And uh, Zed, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, good to be here. You've uh, been uh, very active on Twitter lately, uh, making some um, uh, salient observations, including uh, one about the situation in Kenosha, hearkening uh, back to uh, uh, other such situations where police abdicated the Chaz slash chop uh, you know, autonomous zone in Seattle, outside the Wendy's in Atlanta and now in Kenosha, uh, when police vacate and you and, and you tell people as happened in Seattle or whether you tell them formally as as the police chief did in a missive in Seattle, former police chief now, or you tell them through your conduct uh that they have to protect themselves, then you're going to get street justice. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, it's pretty obvious that if you have a situation where you have armed people who are having some kind of dispute 
between each other. Something bad is going to happen at some point. Uh, just watching videos from Kenosha prior to the most recent shooting, you could tell that there were people with guns yelling at each other, and there weren't police anywhere around. There weren't National Guard anywhere around. And that did that remind me of a few other situations over the past few months where they weren't present. They either explicitly said they were going to, or they were just avoiding the area. Uh, and and it's only a matter of time if you have people who are politically charged, um, who know the area is lawless, who are just going to try to sell their with anything else. I mean, on Monday, there was an elderly man who was a uh, he had his jaw broken by rioters, right? Because he was just defending his business, I think, with a fire extinguisher or something, right? right? Yeah. It's not. It shouldn't be up to an individual person like that to defend their business, right? Like police should be doing that for people. But I think the dynamic is different here than normal types of disorder or protest because the police themselves are the target, right? Like the police are the target of the protest. So I think there's probably a sense among some of these like democratic mayors or among the police chiefs that hey, if the police are the target, it's best to try to keep them away from the riot or the protesting if we can because that'll make things worse. But to me, someone getting shot and killed is, is the worst, one of the worst possible outcomes. And it may be, a, even if, um, you know, it upsets some of the people who happen to be out there, it doesn't seem like there's any substitute for having police on the scene because having vigilantes and rioters fighting with each other, shooting at each other, as has happened multiple times now in multiple places, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not tenable, right? Like they can't keep order. They're, they're not trained to keep order. They're not, they're not police officers. Yeah. And it's also uh, gives <laughs> as if it was needed, um, gives folly to the notion of uh, unarmed social workers replacing police officers, unarmed social workers reasoning with people on the streets of Kenosha would have worked out so much better. One, uh, some apparently believe, I, I don't know exactly how they're lucky that gentleman that was using a fire extinguisher to just try and ward people off of what was actually, I believe a, a philanthropic organization. Um, they're lucky he was just using a fire extinguisher and not a semi-automatic rifle because that's, that's where this can go. I mean, you see it on the streets of Portland where they're sort of doing medieval times like role playing games for now. But um, all it takes is for one person to get seriously injured or killed to be a spark where you really do have uh, a, a, a significant could have a significant loss of life in the streets. You could have a real massacre on your hands. And the idea, as has been practiced by so many mayors that you were referencing, is, oh, well, if, if uh, statues are the target, we'll just take down the statues. If police are the target, we'll just remove the police. That's called appeasement, and it turns out to be provocative to those who think they can get their way through violence. Yeah, I mean, here's, here's the issue. I mean, America is a country with more guns than people, right? We're not talking about, like, you know, United Kingdom or Germany or something it's very easy to get a gun here. The people who are coming to these events are armed. That in all three cases we mentioned, Seattle, Atlanta, and in Kenosha, both sides had guns. Uh, if you know, if you if you open up a situation where people with guns are allowed to kind of settle their disputes in public, you get the Wild West. I mean, that is what the Wild West was, right? It was although, a place yeah, without the wild, like governing authority. Yeah, although the wild well, but the, actually, you know, the Wild West has sort of a bad reputation. It turns out that it was not so wild, and it did have sheriffs and a governing authority. Uh, to some extent. But but yet what you really have here is there's nobody that is manning the line of, of civilization. So then you have rather than the Wild West, I'd say you have a Hobbesian state of nature where you it's just might makes right. Whoever brings the most force to bear uh, wins. And um, and so you uh, you adjudicate uh, matters based on on that. And that's a pretty dangerous situation. And look, we're we're in a democratic context here, right? Like Every single police department in the country is controlled by either like a municipality, a state, or the federal government. Uh, people have ways 
to settle whatever beef they have with the police without rioting. Right? Yes. They have a democratic process. They can go out and convince their neighbors there needs to be some change in this. They can vote in the election and go to city council meetings. But unfortunately, you know, some people, they just kind of enjoy this too. Like, they literally enjoy the violence. They, they get kind of a thrill from it. And that's not the kind of thing that a, a place can just kind of let loose because then it leads to these kind of outcomes. I think that, you know, something that's very, very important is there was a poll by Gallup just came out. It was testing how people felt about different types of demonstrations. Most people were pretty sympathetic to nonviolent demonstration, but I think something like only 8% of Americans said that looting or rioting was, was justified, or arson was justified. And, you know, that's, you know, 8% is not <laughs> the group of people you need to be appeasing, right? Like if there's 8% of people in America all started to believe in some crime, like they all started to believe murder was okay. You can't, you know, it's not, it's not a matter of, Listen to the people by allowing writing because most people don't like it. Most people don't support it or endorse it. Um, you also uh, if police were to just arrest people. Most people would support that. So. No, there's no question. And you also uh, make the point of who's uh, doing, uh, conducting some of the violence. Um, uh, this can't be repeated enough. You, you uh, tweeted out about uh, in, in response to the argument that's being advanced by some, including uh, Nicole Hannah Jones of the 1619 Project, that. You know, most of this is just uh, property and, and doing damage to property is not violence and taking other people's property is just a symbolic taking. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, they there was a uh, friend of mine, Michael Tracy, who went around different places that had riots in America and reporting. I mean, in, in Minneapolis, it was primarily like new immigrants to the United States, people who came from Somalia, people who came from the Middle East, uh, set up a business. Everything they had was in the business. Now it's not, right? Like, it's not that property is how they put food on the field. That property is healthcare. The policies have to roof over their heads, right? Uh, I don't think Nicole Hannah Jones or anyone else would want to give give away the roof over their head or all the money they earn, right? Those, that's a serious thing. And it's just natural that we have a situation where I defend their property. Right? Well, Someone's well, just right. like, you can't take all this from me, right? And that's when the violence comes, right? It's, people get hurt. He is Zed Jelani, Greater Goods, Bridging Differences, Writing Fellow. Zed, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Great, thanks. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, updating their mask guidelines yet again, saying, uh, just so you know, that uh, those who come in close contact with someone with coronavirus for more than 50 minutes could spread the virus regardless of whether either party wears a mask, starting to um, provide a little bit more disclosure on the uh, dubious science behind so much mask wearing, particularly, you know, masks of the kind that most are wearing, the surgical mask, the bandana over your, you know, the face covering. It's just remarkable. We've gone from legitimate concern about hospitalization and death in terms of the lethality of the virus to just counting infections, there's not even a discussion. There's not even contextual information about the severity of the infections. We're done with that. We don't want to talk about therapeutics that have shown some promise, actually in real-world practice, including hydroxychloroquine, but not limited to that, because we're all obsessed about masks as some sort of uh, panacea. It's so ridiculous. 
if you just say, listen to the scientists and follow the science and the data, then you're absolved from having to answer any of these nuanced questions or discern disagreements among equally credentialed scientists, for that matter. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by a credentialed medical doctor, scientist, Dr. Harvey Risch. He is professor of epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at Yale School of Public Health and Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Risch, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Nice to be with you. Um, Why don't we start with something where, where you've had to field some criticism your support for hydroxychloroquine uh, combined with uh, azithromycin as a effective therapeutic early stages of infection, as uh, many emergency room doctors that we've spoken with have said the same. Yes, I think this is a clear picture. You know, there's a lot of debate, as you put it, and uncertainty in various aspects dealing with this infection. But one thing that has become abundantly clear is that when you, you look at high-risk patients, who need to be treated, these are people who are over age 60 or they have obesity or diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, maybe they've suffered and survived cancer in the past. These people are the ones who are likely to go on after seven to eight days of the infection with more severe pneumonia. When you look at those people, so we're talking now about high-risk people who are treated in the first started in the first four or five days of their infection, treated with hydroxychloroquine, and even better with zinc and with azithromycin or doxycycline, those are the ones who do extremely well on the treatment. The treatment reduces the risk of hospitalization at least by half, if not by 60 or 70 percent, and maybe even more if all three drugs are used. So that's a clear picture. There are no studies that show that very specific combination of circumstances, being at high risk, starting treatment early, that works. The uh, dean of the Yale School of Public Health, Dr. Stan Vermund, was asked about your advocacy for the use of hydroxychloroquine, as, as so you, you just so described in your scholarship on the topic. And he said, uh, quote, my role as dean is not to suppress the work of the faculty, but rather to support the academic freedom of our faculty, whether it is in the mainstream of thinking or is contrarian. Yale-affiliated physicians used HCQ early in the response to COVID-19, but it is only rarely used at present due to evidence that it is ineffective and potentially risky. There's additional criticism that the studies that you cite in support of your position did not include any randomized control trials. And so the, the combination of that criticism plus the dean of your public health school sort of gingerly walking around your position, how do you react? So here again is part of the misinformation campaign. I'm not accusing my dean of, of misinformation, but I'm accusing the others who purvey this information as if it applies to the circumstances I just described. Mm-hmm. So I just told you that this is an outpatient medication used in high-risk patients. The Yale School of Medicine used this in hospital patients. There's no surprise that when you use it in late-stage people who are doing very poorly with a, a florid pneumonia, that it doesn't work. And that's why they stopped using it. One cannot extrapolate that to healthy outpatients used in the first four or five days of illness. The randomized control trials have all been done in low-risk patients. All of the studies so far have looked at healthcare workers who are almost entirely under age 60, healthy, no other chronic conditions. And you see this because in their placebo or control groups, with the ones who did not get the medication, they have very low rates of hospitalization. It's difficult to do better than perfect when you're doing perfect without treatment. And so the problem is they were studies of the wrong people. The one exception to this was a study in Spain, which happened to have inadvertently included almost 300 people in nursing homes. 
And in that study, which looked at people who were exposed to, to others who were infected and whether they, the, the people who were exposed got the illness, that randomized controlled trial showed that the nursing home patients who got hydroxychloroquine had half the risk of having this bad outcome compared to the ones who didn't. When we come back with Yale Medical School's Dr. Harvey Risch, I want to get your perspective on why you think some of your colleagues have such a visceral opposition to your views on hydroxychloroquine and what long-term effects you think the politicization of medicine will have on the uh, reputation of public health professionals like yourself. More with Dr. Harvey Risch. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Dr. Harvey Risch, Yale Medical School, and uh, discussing his advocacy for hydroxychloroquine as an effective therapeutic to treat COVID-19 infections in specific circumstances, as he described. And, uh, Doctor, I wonder how you explain some of your colleagues coming out so vociferously against your views that seem to be, you know, eminently reasonable and very specific position that you've taken. There was a letter from some of your colleagues published in response to your advocacy, and um, it didn't really address the specific position you just described. It just sort of uh, acknowledged your renown in, in cancer, in epidemiology surrounding cancer, but uh, said, you know, but we oppose what he's saying about HCQ, like it's a political debate rather than a scientific one. What is going on there? Well, you might, you hit the nail on the head. There was no scientific discussion in, in what they wrote, and I would also point out that they said, I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist. That, in fact, is incorrect. As much as I've done the majority of my work in cancer, my Ph.D. was in modeling of infectious epidemics. And furthermore, the question of drug efficacy is not a question of infectious epi- uh, diseases. It's a question of the efficacy of a drug. And I've dealt with drugs in my career as an epidemiologist all along. So th- they misrepresent what the issues are, even in criticizing me and my expertise. And that misrepresentation goes all the way through. Without citing any studies, without saying anything about the actual science, they lodged you know, charges that are basically irrelevant. They're what we call ad hominem attacks, attacking me and not attacking the science. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an accurate depiction of what happened. And so I wonder uh, how concerned you are about the professional reputation of, uh, of your uh, discipline, uh, of your medical discipline coming out of COVID-19, whenever that happens, um, with all of these arguments and so much of this descending into politics and, and politics polluting science like it pollutes everything else, I, I wonder what you think the future of epidemiology is going to look like and how seriously a, a wide swath of the public is going to take the pronouncements of public health professionals. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a problem. I think we're tarnished. I think the lack of objectivity, the lack of examine, careful examination of the science um, is, is a big problem. And that, uh, whether it's political or economic, money-based, you know, you have to address who's saying it, why they're saying it. 
and it, it's really not objective. And and I think it's tarnished not only epidemiologists; it's tarnished the medical world very much as well with all the the malfeasance, the retracted studies, the you know things that are misrepresented, the conclusions, the randomized controlled trials that came out of the University of Minnesota, Minnesota, where um, Dr. Boulware has substantial conflicts of interest with companies making other competing medications that he did not divulge in four papers that he put out this year. I think that there is a big problem with competing narratives that are not scientific, mm-hmm. and this is causing a lot of distrust. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by the way, your uh, um, support in the way that you've just described it for the use of hydroxychloroquine, which comports with, as I said before, uh, discussions with real-world ER doctors that are really using the treatment you described in those circumstances effectively. I, mean, I just love how we're supposed to ignore what's actually happening in the real world with practitioners. But um, uh, in a, you're not saying this to the exclusion of other therapeutics that have shown some promise too, remdesivir, dexamethasone, um, but those are just used in different circumstances generally. Everything has its place and the value of its efficacy, and I think, you know, you have to separate each thing and see how well it works. One of the things that isn't well known is that in critical care medicine, this is in hospitalized, very ill patients, randomized control trials are rarely used. They, there basically is not much room to have a formulaic approach to the individual patient in that circumstance. Randomized control trials generally involve fixed doses of, of medications or treatments, and they cannot be applied when you have a patient whose life you have to save. So they're rarely used as a standard of evidence. One has to summarize an entire body of knowledge. And, and in fact, this case has been made by multiple people. Uh, Dr. Tom Frieden, who was head of the CDC, published an article in the New England Journal in 2017 where he basically said randomized controlled trials in the real world can have substantial flaws that make them not a gold standard necessarily. And because of that, one has to entertain all of the evidence, all of the scientific evidence, and not hide behind a, a ritual fetish about randomized trials. And a very interesting essay was published in, in the, the online magazine Tablet by Norman Deutsch, who's a psychiatrist at the University of Toronto, talking about the um, the formulaic or, or ritual perception of randomized controlled trials is the only form of evidence. It's a very naive way of looking at science, and that's not the way science moves forward. And just a reminder, too, and not for you, but for our audience, um, I mean, this doesn't even include a discussion of the Lancet, perhaps the most respected medical journal on the planet, having to retract uh, a study that was uh, that, 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 that pre- uh, presumed to debunk the use of hydroxychloroquine earlier this summer. Well, the journals are actually much worse than that, if you can imagine. The problem is that in addition to the fact that that drug companies have been known to carry out multiple studies and then select the ones that happen by chance to show significant findings and then present them to the journals as if they were the only studies, um, the journals publish what are really opinion pieces. And they are they, the journal editors have said multiple times they feel compelled to give space to these opinion pieces that are written by people funded by the drug companies. And these opinion pieces are very one-sided and very manipulative about the real world of the science. And this has happened over and over again in the New England Journal and the Lancet and the Journal of the American Medical Association, where people come out making the most absurd statements that are basically just self-serving 
for companies manufacturing products. Mm. And it's a, it's a big problem. Yeah, and the editors have basically said they have no choice because their journals are funded by advertising from companies that, they, in order to stay afloat, they feel they have to do this. Well, that inspires a lot more confidence in the, the, those journals, doesn't it? Uh, Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor of Epidemiology at the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at Yale School of Public Health and Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Risch, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Well, you finally got a response from the basement, and uh, this is what Joe Biden had to say. See how long it takes to get to the issue of lawlessness on America's streets and America's big cities, and now not so big cities. See how long it takes to get there and what he prefaces it all with. What I saw in that video makes me sick. Once again, a black man, Jacob Blake, has been shot by the police in broad daylight with the whole world watching. You know, I spoke to Jacob's mom and dad, sister, and other members of the family just a little bit earlier, and I told them justice must and will be done. You know, our hearts are with his family, especially his children. It's horrible what they saw. Watching their father get shot, like Gianna Floyd, they're asking why. Why daddy? Put yourself in the shoes of every black father and black mother in this country and ask, is this what we want America to be? Is this the country we should be? You know, as I said after George Floyd's murder, protesting brutality is a right and absolutely necessary. But burning down communities is not protest. It's needless violence. Violence that endangers lives. Violence that guts businesses and shutters businesses that serve the community. That's wrong. In the midst of this pain, the wisest words that I've heard spoken so far have come from Julia Jackson, Jacob's mother. She looked at the damage done in her community and she said this, quote, This doesn't reflect my son or my family. So let's unite and heal, do justice, end the violence, and end systemic racism in this country now. Uh-huh. Uh, he's right about one thing, the... Uh thoughtful, intelligent, measured words of Julia Jackson, Jacob Blake's mom. So there's no question about that. Unfortunately, people aren't listening to her, including Joe Biden, who has to preface the entirety of his uh, condemnation of violence with this idea that, number one, the matter is settled in the Jacob Blake case and the police officer involved shooting. And I don't think it is. It's not the same as George Floyd. I think reasonable people would concede that point, Joe Biden not being one of them, even though he's trying to make the comparison. Number two, it uh, doesn't necessarily speak to racism at all. I have no idea. There's no indication that that's the case. Uh, Remember, thankfully, Jacob Blake has survived. He hasn't made that assertion. At least it's not been reported. And there's been other communications between by, uh, between Blake and his family that have been reported by his mom and dad. It's just more of the same sort of reckless racial demagoguery from Democrat socialists, the same that you heard from Governor Evers of Wisconsin, the same that you heard from Lieutenant Governor Barnes of Wisconsin, where he suggested 
that Blake was de-escalating the situation and the officer escalated it. As we talked about earlier in the show, no fewer than five times did Jacob Blake have the opportunity to de-escalate the situation, and in every turn, he escalated it. But does that mean that the use of lethal force was justified? Not saying that yet, because there's still questions to be answered. Want to get more information. Want to get a, a clear picture before opining on that topic. But the statement by Joe Biden, that's a person that's serious about uh, the rule of law, serious about covering his butt, serious about the concern he has that his poll numbers are atrophying as the Democrat socialists indulge the mob on America's streets. Yeah, serious about that. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also have a podcast there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Lives versus lives. Uh, what do we find? We find um, on the deaths of despair front, CDC data uh, suggests that um, one in four young people have had suicidal thoughts during the pandemic to date. For comparison, that's uh, less than 6% of young people, same age cohort, harbored similar thoughts a decade early, according to older CDC data. So, you know, one in four is not usual. More than 40% of respondents said the crisis had prompted mental health or behavioral problems. The uh, overdoses nationally, uh, NPR reports that uh, overdoses nationally have spiked about 18% to give you an order of magnitude. In 2018, more than 67,000 Americans died from drug overdoses. So an 18% increase, well, that's another, what, 12,000 dead if you go off the 67,000 number. Now, again, that's not necessarily all attributed to COVID-19. It's difficult to extract that all out. But when you see a considerable spike and you see the overriding variable that can reasonably be inferred to be impactful, then it needs to be addressed, doesn't it? And there were studies like the one at the Wellbeing Trust at the outset or during the height of the outbreak that suggested we could see upwards of 70 to 75,000 excess deaths of despair because of the lockdown policies. Uh, Remember, this doesn't include the impact of the unemployment rate, particularly extended unemployment. We find from a study done by economists from Indiana University and Ohio State, 60% of the layoffs they attribute to lockdown policies. And we know from a a long trail of studies on unemployment rate, the uh, increase in the suicide rate with every one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate and that doesn't contemplate people who have had their lives or livelihoods significantly impacted by rioting to add to the COVID-19 lockdown policies. So um, thinking about all of that, this piece uh, over at the Skeptical Inquirer, which was uh, quite interesting, the tyranny of now. And, and also, uh, we want the answer right now. If it's nuanced, we want to understand uh, on which side we should err. And then... Uh, Something that isn't exactly tackled in the piece, but and then we sort of cling to whatever we decided to do at the outset, even while the so-called experts who we've ceded so much of our lives to are moving all over the place on therapeutics, 
on vaccine timelines, on mask usage and mask usage within different cohorts, as well as uh, across the board on what can and can't open about who decides what can and can't open about what the thresholds are for closing once you've opened something. And yet people just cling to, in some cases, the abundance of caution mantra that leaves you paralyzed in place. It's really a a disquieting thing. It's a disquieting thing if you want to return to some semblance of the fuller life I think most people were enjoying prior to COVID-19. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Stuart Weiss. He is the author of the piece I was referencing. He's a psychologist. He's also the author of Believing in Magic, The Psychology of Superstition, and Going Broke, Why America Can't Hold On to Their Money. Well, in part because I think government's got their hands on it. Maybe that's part of the answer. Stuart Weiss, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Um, So uh, when you uh, you're writing about the tyranny of now, um, you go through sort of how you approached this from the outset of the awareness of the outbreak back in March. And so, you know, sort of give us your personal journey to, you know, inform your perspective uh, as we stand here today at the end of August and how it evolved over those uh, intervening six months. Well, I think I think it's a situation where we did need to look forward, for example, to schools. I mean, there's all this attention now on on being able to get kids back into school for obvious reasons. That would be tremendous. But I don't think we focused on those factors that would really bring the infection rate down and and make people more comfortable with uh, with doing that. I mean, you know, we're kind of in the middle of a of a, a perfect free market experiment where, you know, as long as the virus is something that's a part of our lives and is increasing as it is in Illinois and other places, you know, people are just not going to behave the same way. And uh, and if we had taken a a harder, quicker approach, I think we would be in a much better place now that that's that's sort of the way I see it now. It just seems to me that what you have right now is sort of the uh, you, you call it the tyranny of now. That's part of it. It's the tyranny of experts and the session, the the the, the seeding of one's autonomy to experts that are in many cases uh, in disagreement with one another. And in uh, other cases are just as uh, involved in the search for answers and just as um, j- just as lost in that search as laymen are in the body politic. Yeah, I, I, I agree that it's a confusing message. I obviously put more faith in experts than perhaps you do. But it's true that COVID is all new and we and, and science is an iterative process. We don't we don't make the you know, it doesn't work the first time. That's what the, the word experiment, you know, means that you have to try and see if it's going to work. And uh, so so I think that we are in a situation where we're all learning how to do this uh, and there is no clear path. Um, I do think that it's unfortunate that it's been so politicized. I mean, I heard your your earlier guest uh, make the analogy to a hurricane. It is that no one politicizes a hurricane. It's a hurricane. And this is this is a plague. And and I, I think that we are weakened by the fact that we are so divided over this issue and can't come together. Many and you mentioned Sweden. Sweden is an extremely unified country. They tend to trust their government. They yeah. had 93%, 93% compliance with the health guidelines in Sweden. We're not getting that here. Yes, and, uh, yes, and, yes. But, 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 but that, I, I'm familiar with that study. But it's difficult to 
um, extract the psycho- the psychological effect that the government instituting lockdowns has on people's behavior to then say if it's serious enough for the government to lock down bars and restaurants and and basically out yeah. the outside, sure. oh. then that's going to inform yeah. how I behave regardless of what they say next. Because now you've got me scared. Sure. Um, sure. You know, I, I, so I mean, maybe, you know, maybe we could start with maybe like a do a reset. How about any politician? I don't care their party who says, um, listen to the, the, the science and follow the data uh, is in prison for life. How about that? Um, as just a way to say you can't get away with refrigerator magnet pronouncements like that. We have to talk about the specifics and we have to acknowledge yeah. mistakes that were made. Well, oh, by the way, maybe one of the reasons the Swedes stressed their government a little bit more is because the Swedes came out and said, you know what? We could have done a job, better job with nursing homes. Uh, too many people died in our nursing mm. homes because we didn't yeah. uh, we didn't take the precautionary measures that we should have. Acknowledging wrongdoing. We can't get Andrew Cuomo to acknowledge that his sending infected patients back into New York, as other governors did as well. Um, let, six thousand is one estimate. He won't allow for any auditing to be done because he doesn't want you know this to be political. For goodness sakes, you know that's the that's what breeds mistrust in government and mistrust from the experts that are providing cover for the politicians who return the favor. I I, I agree completely. I mean, I I think that there have been a lot of places where mistakes have been made and not owned up to, and uh, and that is part of the process. I mean, that's why, for example, there are retractions from journals. Yeah. And there are there are differing opinions. It's it's an as I say, it's an iterative process. You have to you have to do the work and figure out what the truth is. And uh, and I, I totally agree with you. I think that I think that uh, politicians should be honest about uh, about mistakes they make as well as scientists. Uh, it's it, and I'm sure that is part of the reason why the Swedes trust their government. And, and the and the expectation game too. You discuss this in your piece, and I appreciate that. And and this is again across the board. You know that uh, I don't want mindless happy talk, and I don't want uh, apocalyptic nonsense either. And you write one of the most frustrating aspects of the fight against uh, SARS-CoV-2 has been the imposition of substantial changes in our lives, only have to to, to only to have to wait for weeks to see. Uh, any benefit of our sacrifices. If you control expectations and look, look, I'm not an omniscient being and neither are these people. We know something. We've studied this a lot. We've got some ideas that are rooted in in sound thinking and the science as we understand it at present. And here's what we're going to do. Here's our hope. And you're going to have to come along the way. And then four weeks from now, we're going to stop, look and listen. Understand if it's effective. And if it's not effective, we're going to make a course correction. If it is that we're going to you know, see where we're at and see if we need to continue on the course we're on. If you had, you know, three dimensional human beings speak to people like adults, um, maybe we would do a better job, generally speaking. Totally agree. That's, you know, more honesty, more more forthright presentation of what we do and don't know. I think can only breed trust and, and cooperation from from people who are being asked to sacrifice so much. He is Stuart Weiss. He's a psychologist, author of Believing in Magic, the Psychologically the Psychology of Superstition, excuse me, and Going Broke, Why Americans Can't Hold On to Their Money. Stuart Weiss, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. I don't care what you say anymore. This is Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. Uh, moving from our conversation with uh, psychologist Stuart Weiss about uh, the uh, moral panics surrounding COVID-19 and also the uh, just curious case of watching pro-abortion Democrat socialists tell us about what they would do, move heaven and earth just to save one life, anything under the sun to save one life. Yes, um, the uh, irony completely lost on them. But it's not lost on uh, a number of the uh, Republican National Convention speakers again on Wednesday evening. We've got a good pep talk, good halftime speech from former Notre Dame football coach Lou Holtz, who talked about how he makes decisions in life based on three criteria, three criteria, his assessment of a person's trustworthiness, their commitment and their love of their fellow, their fellow man, their uh, other human beings. And uh, on the, trust factor, why he trusts Trump. This was interesting, the issue that he invoked as the basis for his trust in Trump. You know, there's a statue of me at Notre Dame. I guess they needed a place for the pigeons to land. But if you look closely, you will see these three words there, trust, commitment, and love. All my life, I've made my choices based on these three words. I use these three rules to make choices about everything. My beloved wife of 59 years, athletes I coached, and of course, politicians, even President Trump. I ask myself three things. One, can I trust them? When a leader tells you something, you got to be able to count on it. That's President Trump. He says what he means, he means what he says, and he's done what he said he would do at every single turn. One of the important reasons he has my trust is because nobody has been a stronger advocate for the unborn than President Trump. Interesting. That's top of mind for Lou Holtz. Uh, and then there was uh, the additional uh, speaker I wanted to uh, make sure you uh, saw. Uh, this is uh, Sister Deidre Byrne, Sister Didi, a former Army doctor uh, who uh, then uh, chose a vocation. Uh, and she had this to say on the same topic of standing for life from conception to natural death, but with particular emphasis on the unborn. It's no coincidence that Jesus stood up for what was just and was ultimately crucified because what he said wasn't politically correct or fashionable. As followers of Christ, we are called to stand up for life against the politically correct or fashionable of today. We must fight against a legislative agenda that supports and even celebrates destroying life in the womb. Keep in mind the laws we create define how we see our humanity. And we must ask ourselves, what are we saying when we go into a womb and snuff out an innocent, powerless, voiceless life? As a physician, I can say without hesitation, life begins at conception. While what I have to say may be difficult for some to hear, I am saying it because I'm not just pro-life. I'm pro-eternal life, and I want all of us to end up in heaven together someday. I love that. I'm not just pro-life. I'm pro-eternal life. That's a great, great line. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Abby Johnson, Planned Parenthood director turned pro-life advocate. You heard her Tuesday night at the Republican National Convention, founder of And Then There Were None Ministry, helping other people get out of Planned Parenthood and into a more productive pursuit in life, author of Unplanned, which was optioned into a movie, as you know, if you haven't seen it, see it on the streaming services, and host of the new podcast, Politely Rude, which uh, debuted uh, this week, yesterday, I believe, hosted on uh, Edify, a new podcast app that brings almost every Christian podcast in existence together 
in a one-stop shop for people's listening enjoyment. That's Edify and Abby's podcast, Politely Rude. Abby, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sister Didi went on to say that uh, President Trump is the most pro-life president in American history. And uh, you said something similar uh, about Trump, and it's uh, just sort of a remarkable a remarkable statement, uh, considering what everyone knows about President Trump's life. I, I, I say this all the time. I, I uh, sort of view him like Batman when it comes to the issue of the sanctity of human life. He's maybe not the hero you wanted, but he's the hero you needed. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'll be honest and tell you, I was I was skeptical in 2016 of Trump and, and not knowing really what we were sort of getting ourselves into. But I've been just very pleasantly surprised and have just been very happy um, with the, the champion that he has been for the pro-life movement and for the unborn. Uh, how, when, when you think about 2020, or, I mean, other than him proving up on the issue, so you have a lot more confidence than you perhaps did in 2016, uh, is your calculus the same? This is somebody uh, who is going to make probably, most likely just playing the odds, two to four Supreme Court nominations in addition to more nominations for federal judgeships. And you think about the presidential race through that prism of the courts, uh, or is it uh, is it bigger than that? No, I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that we're looking at at least two Supreme Court uh, replacements, um, probably two liberal Supreme Court placements over the next four years. I think that we are looking at um, more uh, federal judiciary appointments. And I think that hopefully we're looking at more defunding efforts through various title programs, more policies in place to protect the unborn and conscience protections, religious liberty. So, I mean, there's there's a lot on the line here with this election. And uh, uh, would you say the same thing in terms of the Senate, right? Because it's not just the presidency, it's also the Senate. And if, if you Sure. You can't get one. You certainly need the other. But uh, but even if you get uh, a reelection of President Trump, you still have to confirm those judicial appointments and thus the need for a Senate majority. That's pro-life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's definitely not just about the president. I mean, we uh, we definitely uh, would like to have a, a majority in the Senate. Uh, so, I mean, these these other various races are going to be very important. Um, I mean, we need people to get out and vote. I mean, the, that's, that was a, definitely a problem in 2016, and you better believe that the Democratic base, they are, they are rallying their voters, and they will go to any means necessary uh, to get their people to the polls, and we need people out there and, and, and voting in November. And you and uh, your remarks uh, at the convention uh, flipped the script on the Democrats with respect to charges of racism, talking about how Planned Parenthood purposely locates clinics in low-income, predominantly minority neighborhoods. It's it's not just a, the history of racism going back to Margaret Sanger and her racist views. It's also the real-time racism that Planned Parenthood practices that people need to understand. Yeah, absolutely. You know, everybody needs to understand the racist roots of Planned Parenthood and that it's the foundations, the foundational principles of Planned Parenthood are still being carried out today. Um, we see Margaret Sanger's dreams coming to fruition as currently there are almost as many African-Americans being aborted as there are being born alive in the United States. Almost 80% of Planned Parenthood abortion facilities are being, uh, are being put uh, in minority neighborhoods. So 
Um, I mean, this, this is happening in real time. And uh, it's important that people understand this. She is Abby Johnson, Planned Parenthood director turned pro-life advocate, founder of And Then There Were None Ministry, author of Unplanned, and host of the new podcast, Politely Rude, Politely Rude, which debuted yesterday, and you can get at Edify, E-D-I-F-I, Edify, a new podcast app bringing almost every Christian podcast in existence together in a one-stop shop for people's listening pleasure. Abby, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Take care. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. As we uh, discussed earlier in the show, updating the story of Kenosha, both on the police involved shooting side involving uh, Jacob Blake and the now identified officer who shot him. Rustin Shesky, as well as the arrest of a 17-year-old and the charging of that 17-year-old with murder in the case of his shooting two rioters, I would call them, based on what we know, on the streets of Kenosha and injuring another in a shootout. There's some updated reporting on this in terms of tracking live streams of all that was happening and trying to piece together a timeline of what Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old that was protecting a gas station with some other armed individuals, uh, what he was actually doing and what led up to some of the confrontations with the various people that he shot. We'll get to that. But uh, first, a statement from the Kenosha County District Attorney on the prospect of charging Officer Shesky or any other Kenosha police officer in the uh, shooting of Jacob Blake, who, by the way, just updating his condition, doctor saying that he may very well walk again. But again, expected to survive and hopefully walk again as well. Uh, but severe injuries, fortunate that he survived seven gunshot wounds. Uh, here's what uh, Michael Gravely had to say about uh, how he's going to approach the investigation of this case. We will only decide whether any Kenosha police officer is going to be charged with a crime. And that can only occur if we believe that that crime can be can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. I hope that the public and expect and want the public to get that the best possible decision in that regard. And I believe the public deserves a decision that is based on reason and that is based on the most full and most accurate information that can be obtained. That seems to be a uh, eminently reasonable position from a district attorney in terms of approach and the restraint, restraint not practiced by, you know, the governor of Wisconsin, the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, the Democrat candidate for president of the United States and so many others in terms of passing judgment on what happened and who's responsible and who should be arrested or not arrested. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Bradley Thomas. He's a libertarian activist and writer, published at the Mises Institute, Libertarian Institute, and he's also the creator of EraseTheState.com. Bradley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. So um, with respect to, uh, you know, the, the conversation that has been um, accentuated again because of this police-involved shooting about uh, the role of police in providing for civility and the rule of law in society, um, you uh, suggest in a piece that um, this is often in, co- in terms of police misconduct has less to do with race and um, 
more to do with the uh, power uh, that police possess, the monopoly of force that police possess in society, a little bit drunk on power sometimes, if you will. And, um, you know, perhaps something that we should consider in terms of our larger conversation about policing in America, referencing the Stanford prison experiment as to, to sort of underscore your point. Yeah, yeah. And for those who may be unfamiliar with that, it's a 1971 Stanford experiment. And it was really fascinating. What they tried to do in this experiment was to try to, on some level, simulate a prison experience where they selected 21 college student volunteers. And what they did with these volunteers was they just randomly selected, you know, half of them to play the role of guards, half of them to play the role of prisoners. And what they found in this experiment was rapidly that those who were selected, again, randomly, those who were selected to be guards, began to really exert their dominance over these prisoners. There were rules against any sort of, uh, you know, physical abuse to be used, but otherwise they were kind of left to their own devices on how to police this prison experiment. What happened was these guards started subjecting these prisoners to verbal abuse, and then it got down to forcing them into performing these degrading and tedious tasks. The experimenters who were conducting this became so appalled at it that the uh, experiment was originally scheduled for two weeks, and they shut it down after six days because just ethically, they couldn't continue to subject these, uh, the ones that were selected to be prisoners, couldn't subject them to this kind of abuse any longer. So what some of the conclusions that they drew from this and, and really brought to light was that, you know, something within a lot of humans, once they're given great power, power over the lives of others, they often can find that to be to be intoxicating and they want to exert it more and more in more instances. So, um, you know, I, I kind of make the case that when the government grants this kind of monopoly power into the hands of the police force, that this is is what is happening uh, all too often is that the the, the police uh, likes this form of power and they want to find more ways to exert that power over their citizens. Yeah, and and uh, let, let's let's pick it up there uh, after the break. By the way, a good movie from three or four years ago on the Stanford Prison Experiment, which I think was called the Stanford Prison Experiment, and documentary as well. But I want to explore a little bit more just how present the Lord Acton problem is with uh, policing. Uh, more with Bradley Thomas from the. Uh, uh, Mises Institute and as well as erasethestate.com right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're talking to Bradley Thomas. He's a libertarian activist and writer published at the Mises Institute, Libertarian Institute. He's also the creator of EraseTheState.com and going through a piece that he recently penned that uh, uh, wonders about the monopoly of force that police are conferred to uh, enforce the law in civil society and uh, the sort of Stanford prison experiment uh, Absolute power corrupts absolutely concerned that may be at play in some of the police abuse cases, the uh, the, the instances where it's clear that excessive force was used. Uh, one would argue George Floyd, for example, was the case of that. Uh, and, you know, the, the Sanford prison experiment is interesting, but it's also a different environment than police have. Right. I mean, that that was in a prison setting that the, or something a facsimile of a prison setting. 
And as is the case in the, the Kenosha case with Jacob Blake, you know, this is a limited response to a domestic call. And so the interaction that police have with any one person for any extended period of time is so much different than prison guards have with prisoners on a daily basis for an eight hour shift, for example. And and I, and it seems to me the, um, the 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 case in Kenosha sort of speaks to this where um, there were, you know, at least four, if not five uh, times where uh, Mr. Blake could have complied with police and. Uh, and, and and the situation would have probably resolved itself maybe with an arrest, but certainly not with anybody injured, much less shot. And he didn't do it. It seems like that the, the sort of power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely may be the case. And with certain police departments, with certain notoriously corrupt cops running criminal enterprises within police departments in New York and Chicago, there are examples of this. But generally speaking, is that a problem that really is identifiable uh, across uh, half a million police officers and tens of millions of interactions with the populace? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it definitely, you know, that specific case in Kenosha, um, you know, kind of leaving that aside, I think, you know, you you hit on a lot of good points. There was um, lots of opportunities to comply and avoid that tragic ending, um, that situation. But just kind of speaking more uh, generally, uh, I, I think, and, and, I, and I try to contrast in my piece, I try to contrast this kind of monopoly of, of security uh, via the government versus what perhaps could arise if there was a market in security, uh, if we privatize the police, where there's, in that case, there's more of an incentive uh, for these, these folks running these security systems to, um, you know, really serve their customers or face losing them. You know, obviously, police departments, if they, uh, you know, there, there's no competition uh, for them. Uh, so there's there's different incentives in place if we start you know trying to envision uh, what uh, a voluntary market could uh, what could emerge in a voluntary market for private security forces. Uh, one thing too I think is is important to note is just really kind of the overcriminalization uh, that I would argue uh, in society today with government creating so many laws that affect so many. In, uh, uh, aspects of our life. I mean, if you really go by the letter of the law, it's almost impossible for right. even just the average citizen to avoid violating some law. Three felonies a day. Right? So the Har- just, yeah, Harvey Silvergate's book, Three Felonies a Day, right? Exactly right. So this really dramatically increases the interactions between uh, law enforcement and citizens, uh, which, of course, the more interactions, the more potential for these kind of tragic situations to occur. I wanted to get to another piece that uh, you penned over at the Mises Institute, um, by the way, which I'm I'm a fan of, uh, even though I'm, I don't really consider myself a libert- I don't consider myself a libertarian, but I I do appreciate Mises and Hayek and the Austrian school, um, and uh, I appreciate it uh, that much more when uh, someone affiliated with the Mises Institute writes a piece like this about the family, uh, because it uh, demonstrates uh, the kind of understanding that. Um, uh, around which a consensus needs to be rebuilt, it seems to me. You uh, talk about Black Lives Matter and the section on their website that has been much discussed, including on this show, where they talk about the need to um, essentially disrupt, which is a translation, which translated means eliminate the nuclear family structure, which is an impediment to government control. The family is. The family is. The church is. These are the things that must be uh, disrupted dispatched, I would argue police is, uh, is they all have the same perspective about police. But um, talk about uh, uh, why 
uh, a Marxist organization like Black Lives Matter and Marxists generally seek to demand dismantle the nuclear family because I think people have a hard time believing that can't really be their position or that's just kids saying stuff when in point of fact, no, it's actually a core tenet of Marxism and it's a, a core basis on which a small group of people can subjugate a large group of people. Yeah. And I really kind of dived into depth uh, in trying to explore and understand, uh, you know, why an organization like Black Lives Matter would want to, in their words, disrupt the nuclear family. And uh, I, I really traced it back to a book I had read uh, a couple of years ago, and I revisited that, uh, was a book by Frederick Engels, uh, of course, Karl Marx's longtime collaborator called The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. And what he did, um, and you can you know read the article and get more details about it and how it's traced out, but uh, in there, or what Engels wrote about was that the, the um, um, the creation, if you will, of the institution of private property, uh, private ownership and the means of production is what gave rise to the modern kind of nuclear family uh, because uh, uh, men um, uh, controlled these means of production in primitive, primitive times and that incentivized them to then find a single woman then to, uh, uh, you know, reproduce with so then that the man knows who his heirs are so then the man can then pass his property down to his heirs and and then in Engels' time, he was, of course, at the time Engels was writing this, at that time, uh, he was looking at big factory owners and these, you know, in, in his eyes, these big, uh, rich, fat cat capitalists. And their incentive was to keep this nuclear family intact so that they could pass down their ownership in the means of productions down to their heirs. So for them uh, to disrupt the nuclear family, like Black Lives Matter is talking about, uh, these trained Marxists, they believe that to strike at the root of the, the nuclear family is to then, you know, to do that, you must strike at uh, uh, the capitalist system itself and yeah. and replace the private ownership and the means of production with, with more uh, socialized, uh, collectivized ownership. Uh, he is Bradley Thomas, libertarian activist and writer, published at the Mises Institute, Libertarian Institute. He's also the creator of EraseTheState.com. Bradley Thomas, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, you remiss if we didn't uh, remark upon uh, some of the last remarks of a political nature from Kellyanne Conway, counsel of the president, his campaign manager in 2016, Conway uh an opportunity to address those viewing the convention and focused on what President Trump has done to promote women, women like her. For decades, he has elevated women to senior positions in business and in government. He confides in and consults us, respects our opinions, and insists that we are on equal footing with the men. President Trump helped me shatter a barrier in the world of politics by empowering me to manage his campaign to its successful conclusion. With the help of millions of Americans, our team defied the critics, the naysayers, the conventional wisdom, and we won. For many of us, women's empowerment is not a slogan. 
It comes not from strangers on social media or sanitized language in a corporate handbook. It comes from the everyday heroes who nurture us, who shape us, and who believe in us. He has stood by me, and he will stand up for you. Uh, fine remarks. I'm not sure that's going to uh, persuade uh, suburban women to uh, move in any substantial way towards closing the 18-point gap that uh, Trump has, according to some recent polling, among women. Now, this is registered voters only, not likely voters, so it carries a little less weight. But clearly, the female deficit that Republicans have struggled with well before President Trump arrived on the scene, and he's struggling with in a pronounced way. It's frustrating. It's frustrating like it is in so many other demographics. But um, I, I think the way, the way, the more likely way that you'll get more women to vote for President Trump to reelect him, begrudgingly, perhaps, with qualms, of course, but uh, safety. I mean, first and foremost, if you don't feel safe, if you truly are not safe, then it's hard to get to other matters of interest, that safety and stability is the core deliverable. And uh, that's why Mike Pence in his keynote speech sort of began and ended with the appeal, framing the choice in uh, just over 60 days as uh, a law and order matter. We don't have to choose between supporting law enforcement and standing with our African-American neighbors to improve the quality of their lives, education, jobs, and safety. And from the first days of this administration, we've done both. And we will keep supporting law enforcement and keep supporting our African-American and minority communities across this land for four more years. Yes, it is possible to walk and chew gum. When asked whether he'd support cutting funding to law enforcement, Joe Biden replied, yes, absolutely. Joe Biden would double down on the very policies that are leading to violence in America's cities. The hard truth is you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. You won't be safe because he won't stand up to the mob. And that's the same way at the state and local level, too. That's one of the litmus tests in November, as far as I can see, is do you have a politician, regardless of their party, who is willing to stand up for the rule of law, not the lawlessness of the mob? It could be the it turned out to be the defining issue of 2020, even against the backdrop of a pandemic. Thanks for joining us on this edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again to close out Convention Week tomorrow. This is the Dan Proft Show.